You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show. Today we have on Chris Larson. Chris is the founder and managing partner of Next Level Income, where he helps investors become more financially independent through education and investment opportunities. Chris is investing in and managing real estate in over for 20 years. He actually bought his first property at the age of 21 while he was still getting his degree at Virginia Tech. Go Hokies. And since yeah. then, he actively has been involved in over $150 million of real estate acquisitions and over 1,500 units under management. Chris lives with his wife and his two boys in Asheville, North Carolina, which, in my opinion, is one of the most secret hidden gems of the East Coast. But with that, <laughs> with that, Chris, welcome to the show. Matt, I'm excited to be here with you today. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the really difficult questions here. So we'll start with what's your favorite ice cream? Dude, I'm a uh, fat kid trapped in a skinny white man's body. You know, like you, I've been an endurance athlete for a lot of years, race bikes for over 20 years. So really like any ice cream, my wife says I have the worst self-discipline because I'm like, you can't buy ice cream and bring it in the house because I will That's eat right. it. That's but right. If, if I go, if I go, I love, I love a really good salted caramel ice cream. There you go. All right. Controversial topic then. Toppings or no toppings? See, my wife always toppings me. I just I just love straight up, you know, salted caramel. I think that's because it just goes down faster. I think that's yeah. the reason. Yeah. I'm a big salt fan too. So salt and sweet's a good mix. Oh. I will say in 2020, I stumbled on this thing that apparently everybody knows about but me called Nutella. Are you familiar oh, with this? Oh, dude. If yeah, you think you think I'm bad with ice cream, you bring Nutella in the house. And yep. I will decimate some Nutella. I love it. All right. Well, tell our listeners, what's your scoop? What do you do? Yeah. So Matt, thank you for the great intro. And yeah, Asheville is a hidden gem in my opinion. So for 18 years, I was in the medical device industry. For most of that, I was a sales rep for the last four or five years of my career. I was in a management role. But uh, as this podcast is, is about to air here, I'm actually stepping out of that career due to the real estate investments that we've made over the last 20 years, over the last two decades. So today, my focus is on next level income. And as you said in the introduction, there's really two things that we do. Education, which is at the key of everything in my mind, and then opportunities. So we have a whole platform. We have a blog. We have a podcast. Uh, we have a book that you can get for free at our website, nextlevelincome.com. Just click on the book link and we'll get it to you. And then we have the opportunities. So if you're interested in learning more about those, we can certainly talk about today, Matt. Um, but really, that's those are investments that people can make to actually provide you know, these sources of passive income where they can ultimately achieve true freedom. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on your retirement, early retirement. And instead yeah, of a like watch, I, yeah, and instead <laughs> of a watch, I hope they give you a nice salted caramel scoop of ice cream. Um, there you go. I'll, I'll settle for that. There you go. Well, most of the time we like to dig right into the real estate journey, but I think you have a super interesting backstory of how you got into real estate and some of your history early in life that I kind of want you to uh, tell our listeners about. And then I want to ask a few questions about it. Yeah. So I think, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show. I feel like I've been very fortunate in a lot of ways, but you know, when I talk to people, I share my story. A lot of people are like, wow, you've, you've had a lot of loss and you've had a lot of, you know, very, very uh, challenging scenarios. And 
Um, it's interesting. I was, I was getting, actually went to an acupuncturist yesterday to, to kind of work through some issues I'm having, like with my shoulders and, you know, these things came up again. So it's really amazing how issues that you go through in your life manifest themselves, you know, not only in your health, but also the way you, you deal with money and other things. And I've been able to channel a lot of these things into, I feel positive, but when I was five, I lost my father. He died tragically in a plane crash. And my mother really, she blamed him for that. She thought that, you know, he maybe was a little too careless or reckless. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, the, the trauma with that she went through, you know, the tears, the, you know, some of the rage that she went through that I had to deal with that emotional instability. And it's interesting because now if I'm around, you know, situations that are, that are really challenging from, you know, an emotional perspective, my wife says the worst things get the calmer you get. It's like, it just, it doesn't bother me. You know, I have this, this stabilizing thing, like a ship in the sea where I just, I'm able to stay steady. And in the OR, it served me very well, Matt. So it's interesting how, you know, as you go through challenges in life, they have these unintended and sometimes positive consequences. So when, when things would be going badly in the OR, you know, even sometimes people were losing um, their tempers or their, their cool. And I think pe people might be surprised that, that even surgeons and medical staff, you know, sometimes they do lose their cool when it comes to things. And it was my job to be the person to say, here's what we're going to do next. Or, you know, talk to the staff and say, Hey, we need, maybe we need to grab this now because you can't be the one freaking out when people are looking to you for answers. So that, that had a big impact on my life. But I think something that had an even bigger impact is I lost my best friend. I just turned 19. He was 18. Uh, we were roommates. We were training partners. I mean, he was like a brother. I mean, I loved him like a brother. His name was Chris. And it's funny because Matt, you know, as a cyclist, you, know, you put on your helmet and your gear and you're, if you're on a team, you're probably riding the same bike. And we were both within an inch of each other in height. We were both six, six foot one, about the same build. And, and we had both the same name, Chris. Yeah. People would come up to me and be like, hey, Chris. And they'd, they'd be talking to me. And I'm thinking, I have no idea who this person yeah. is. I have no idea what they're talking about. And sometimes they would just walk off. So Chris and I shared you know, this, this tremendous bond as we got to know each other, traveled together, trained together through high school. And I was actually at the race that he was at when he suffered a massive brain hemorrhage. And I was the one that identified him in the hospital. And it was an experience that the way I dealt with it was riding my ass off on my bike. And I hope, hope that that's okay to say on the show, but literally, you know, I just trained and trained and trained and I was at Virginia tech. I was doing a biomechanical engineering degree and my grades just went down and down and down as my mileage and fitness went up and up and up. And I was depressed. And after a year of that, I realized that it wasn't making me happy. And I had friends coming back from Europe. This was in the nineties. I'd gotten to train with Lance Armstrong. I'd gotten to go to the Olympic training center. I was winning races up and down the East coast. Even I wasn't a pro, but I was, I was beating pros in these races. And from the outside, people would probably look and say, man, he's really successful and he's really got it all, but I wasn't happy. And I remember coming across the line a year after Chris's memorial race. So it was, he had a memorial race every Labor Day weekend. It was the second one and I won the first year and I won the second year and I should have been thrilled and I felt nothing. So at the next week I, I quit, quit racing, uh, went back to school and I was kind of lost for a little while. But what dawned on me is I wanted to have the freedom and the ability to get the most out of my life. And I knew that racing my bike wasn't it. And I felt this obligation to really 
live life not only for me, but also for Chris and do that. And I knew that I knew that I was meant for more, but I was still kind of lost in trying to figure out what I was doing. And during that year, I was always kind of entrepreneurial. I sold lofts in, in college. I'd make $10,000 the weekend before school, which for a college kid, that was a lot of money. <laughs> I started day trading. And it's funny because people thought they're like, oh, this, this kid's got like, this, this is rich kid. His parents give him all this money. But I was, I was making, I was making all the money myself. My parents, um, they provided a little bit for me from my, my father's uh, life insurance for my college. But I, I worked, I worked through college and paid for my master's degree. And during that, that junior year, I started day trading, learned a lot about trading and I was doing well. I was making a lot of money. I was also losing a lot of money at times. It was very, very stressful. And during one of those nights or really mornings at 3am, I was laying there in bed and just thinking like, man, I'm, I'm 20 years old. What if I'm 40 years old? I'm like, do I want to be worrying about like the same thing with another zero or two on the end of these trades? And I'm like, man, there's got to be a better way. And I was reading all these books. I started to get into finance. I was like, man, I'm going to go to Wall Street. You know, I'm going to like trade on Wall Street and kind of got, you know, I started this, you know, kind of infatuation with finance and Wall Street. And as I learned more, I started to learn about real estate as an, as an investment vehicle. And the end of that year, I bought my first property at age 21. And that was really what kicked it off. I came to love real estate because, you, you know, even with, two or $3,000, which is what I started with in real estate, I was able to buy a property that was worth six figures. And then I bought the property next door at a $10,000 discount because I got to know the owner. And I thought, wow, this is cool. I can actually have some control over the value of the real estate. I can fix it up and I can leverage it. And wow, the bank will give me more money based upon this value to go buy another property. And my parents had a few rentals that they, you know, just single family rentals that they pay, paid off. So I thought, man, if I can buy enough properties, have $10,000 a month coming in and I can get those properties paid off 10,000 a month, that's, that's plenty to live on. So that was my original plan, Matt. Yeah, so there was a lot there and I'm sorry to hear about some of the tragedies you've experienced and something that I haven't really, I talk about, but I don't really go out there and promote is I actually lost my sister two years ago as well. And Whitney suffered yeah, from so Down syndrome and oh. she passed in my mother's home. And for any parent to have to bury their kid is a tragedy for them to find them dead in their own home is a separate tragedy. Oh. And um, 2020 has been a heck of a year for a lot of folks. And I don't know if we're still out of the, the woods yet. What kind of advice can you give to yeah. somebody listening right now that's going through some of these difficult times to kind of stabilize the ship, as you mentioned? Yeah, I think it's, it's different for different people. And I think, you know, frankly, I think it's harder for people that haven't experienced as much trauma or tragedy or, or hardship in their life. I think in a way, it's a blessing to deal with challenges early in your life because it, it gives you a certain skill set and maybe it even calluses you um, would be kind of a less elegant way of saying that. But it definitely depends on the individual. What I focus on when, when things get tough and look, I still deal with I still deal with a lot of different challenges on a regular basis. I have two young boys. I have a wonderful wife. You know, but you have, you have family, you have friends, you have business things, you have different stresses, good and bad that you deal with. I think you need to go back to your routines and what I tell. So my younger son the other day, he's like, I don't feel good, dad. And I'm like, man, you're not eating well. You're playing video games. You're watching TV. It's been cold out. I'm like you're not, you know, you're not playing soccer right now. I was like, you're, you don't feel good. And you're acting like somebody that doesn't feel good. You're just laying around like you're sick. And I said, what you need to do is you need to get up and you need to go for a run 
and you'd eat something healthy, you know, and, and not eat any sugar and, and, and junk for the next day. And the next day he's like, Hey dad, I'm feeling better. So I think, you know, act as if is one of my favorite things to say, you know, if you're going through a challenging time, get back to the routines that you have when you are at your peak. So if you want to be at your peak and you want to be a successful person, start acting like one. That means don't hit the snooze button. Don't sleep in. You know, these are things that are shown to correlate with depression. You know, if you normally get up at five o'clock when you're feeling really good, get up at five o'clock, even if it sucks that day, put down the alcohol. This is something I, I did recently here, Matt, you and I have been talking about this, put down the alcohol for a while. You know, when I'm having a tough time, it's really comforting to grab a drink and just it's relaxing. You know, I make a cocktail while I'm cooking, but then it's like, oh, you have another one. You just kind of not have to worry about things. Go back to the basics, get a workout in. I've got a friend and he struggles with depression from time to time. And he'll call me. He's like, man, I'm, I'm really struggling this week. You know, the first thing I ask him, when's, when's the last, last time, time you worked out? out? Yeah, yeah. When's the last time? Oh, dude, I haven't worked out for three days. I'm like, every, I'm like, man, every time you don't work, like this always happens, you know, you get in a state. So these are things that are proven to provide positive you know, reactions. And then the other thing is make sure we talked about this a week ago with some of my coaching clients, have an inner circle that you trust, but also an inner circle that gives you energy. You know, that Jim Rohn says, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You know, I like, I like going to CrossFit. I actually don't like going to CrossFit because of the classes. I like to work out pretty intensely by myself. You know, I like going to CrossFit because of the positive energy from people around yeah. you. You know, people are saying, Hey, you know, good job. And you know, work out and it's, it makes you feel better. So again, go back to the basics, get up on time, eat well, exercise and, and go, you know, be around the people that you know are going to support you and give you energy, no matter what you're dealing with, pop, you know, big challenges or small challenges. It's almost too like when I go through those little funks or things like that, the things that I don't really feel like doing are the best things for me. And what I specifically mean about that is walking around the block, spending time with people usually gives me energy, even though I'm an introvert during times like that, eating healthy, even though I want that bowl of ice cream or the pizza pizza or something mm -hmm. like that. But it's a, it's a control the controllables kind of thing. And before I graduated college, I, um, I coached a football team for a while, for a couple of years. And one of the things that the coach really talked about is in a football game, the reason why a football is the shape it is, is because when you drop it, you never know where it's gonna go. And that's a symbol of life. And that what we were trying to teach these kids is you're gonna go through ups and downs. You can't control the fans. You can't control the call. You can't control which way the ball is gonna bounce. All you can control is your effort and your attitude. And to your point around working out, putting yourself around a positive environment, if that's not something you wanna do, it's still chances are the right thing you need to go do. So as we've gotten to know each other, it's, it's a super interesting side of your story that I think maybe a lot of people can't relate what it's like losing a father at such a young age but they can relate to going through a difficult time or things like that, especially coming from 2020, where implementing some of these will help you get back on track and help you go achieve your goals. Yeah. And that's, you know, focus on the positive folk. You know, we, um, again, kind of going back to like what I work with my clients on focus on your da your daily habits. And that's where success comes from. It comes from habits. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing, especially like as an investor, if you're listening, you're, you say, Hey, I like, I want to be a successful investor. I want to have this. It's, it's the compounding effect. 
and the things you do in your daily life compound for you to achieve success as well. So I think that's huge. And then also having goals. Dan Sullivan, a strategic coach, he says, always make your future bigger than your past. And I was sharing this with somebody. I said, I said, when you make your future bigger than your, your past, it gives you energy. That's mm -hmm. why you said retire earlier. And I was like, I hate that word. I think that's why retirement is so detrimental because your future is smaller than your past. Yep. You're going to have less money. You're going to spend less money. You're going to not do as much. I, that doesn't, I don't know. That doesn't excite me, you know, but if you have things you're like, oh, I'm going to retire. I'm going to coach. I'm going to, I'm going to read more books. I'm going to watch more TV, you know, more, more shows like that, I, that are educational or, um, you know, that, that I've been putting, you know, on the back burner, I'm going to exercise more. Like you can twist the concept of retirement to being more than your past in a positive way. So even that can help transform your mind. It's like you're graduating into something better. You're graduating onto the next thing. No, I love it. Like I said, I just wanted to kind of touch on that because that's an interesting thing that I think can help yeah. a lot of people right now. And look, if you're going through I it, so. I, I had a, a coworker actually sadly take his own life two days ago. Mm. And one of mm. the, that was so difficult to hear, but you know, 2020 was a tough year for a lot of folks. And just know that if you're listening out there, there's a lot of people going through something similar and there's people out there that love you and want to be a part of your success. So uh, don't be afraid to phone a friend in those situations. Switching gears like on you and going back to something positive. So you started investing in real estate at the age of 21. You bought one property, you bought the second, but eventually you kind of grew into multifamily. First, before we get there, I want to know, how did you go from day trading stocks making five grand a month to real estate? What, what were some of the differences? Why did you not want to keep going down the stock market path? So I saw the losses as well. So, you know, you're, you know, the stock market cuts both ways and, you know, the late nineties were very, is a lot like today, actually a very volatile time. And you can make a bunch, you could also lose a bunch. And even with the strategy, it's just, it's, it was unsettling to see some of those, some of those swings. Um, and, and trading in my mind is, I think there's two ways you can do well in the stock market. It's from an active strategy where you're, where you're trading either, you know, swing trading over kind of like some longer trades or, or even, you know, doing some shorter trades on a daily basis, or you can, or you can look at the value side of things and you can dollar cost average and you can buy in over time, like Warren Buffett. I think you could do one or the other for me. I thought, okay, if I'm going to apply my time and my effort and build a, build a knowledge set, you know, what do I want to do? And I, I've always thought this way, Matt, even when I was, when I was like young, I was thinking about, should I race bikes or should I play baseball? And I thought, you know what? I want to race bikes because I'll probably ride a bike longer and I'll be more social, you know, when I'm, you know, I'm 20 or 30 or 40 than baseball would be. And I was talking to somebody one time and they're like, that's not normal. Like what 13 year old has that thought? I was like, I don't know. That's just the way I think. A, a so, really smart one. Well, it's, you know, you just, you know, we think in different ways. So yeah. when it came to investing, I thought, man, you're going to have, you know, you already started to see some of the early signs of this high frequency trading and algorithms and machine learning and robots. And I thought, man, you know, I love Michael Lewis and, and all his yeah. stories about Wall Street and trading. But I thought, well, if I'm going to build a skill set, if I build it in real estate, that's probably going to serve me over a longer period of time and than the stock market. And then the other thing, so I have an MBA in finance. I almost got a PhD. It's in portfolio management. And there's something called variance drag. And what that is, if I ask you, what is the average return of 
a stock, if it goes up 20% one year, and then it goes down 10% the next year, what's the answer? 15. Well, it's, uh, it's 20 minus, minus 10, right? Yeah. And then, so down, 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 up, up, up 20, down 10. So you subtract them, you get 10, you divide by two. So it's, it's 5%. But if it goes, it's not, that's not the actual return. Cause if it goes up 20 and drops 10, you end up getting, you end up getting a very uh, much lower return. Um, and maybe even a better way would be, you know, if it goes up hundred percent and goes down 50 the next year, you end up getting a 0% return, even though the average is 25. That's variance drag. That's the geometric mean. So if you look at that over a long period of time, what happens is investments that trade or that perform within a narrower range that are more stable actually outperform. So real estate, where you have half of the return coming from income and half of the return coming from appreciation at say 15% versus a stock that's at 15%, but it goes up 30%, down 30%, up 10, down five, you're going to have more money at the end of 20 years in real estate because it's more stable. So again, I thought, okay, if I'm going to build this skill set and I'm going to have a more stable investment, I'm going to prefer that. 100%. And I love the idea of stability. I told you earlier, I'm a little tired today. So I missed the 15 and the five, I couldn't do math that quickly. But the, the concept, I don't even of, know if I did it that right. <laughs> the concept of if something grows 100%, and then loses 50%, you're still at the That's same fair. amount you were two years ago. However, Wall Street will tell you we average 50% return. And I think that's a key point because a lot of things that people hear about in the stock market is the average return is seven or 8%. But some years, that's not going to be the case. And it's not a true stabilized seven or 8%. So I think stocks definitely perform a role in a portfolio. And I definitely have more than 30, 40% of my portfolio in equity. So I'm not bashing stocks, but there are other ways to skin a cat. It is a strategy, not the strategy. And so if you think about the long term, I love your point about real estate there. In your book, Next Level Income, you talk about the idea of the holy grail in real estate. What is the holy grail? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I kind of stole this from Ray Dalio, who I have a lot of respect for. He may be the most successful investor. You know, a lot of people talk about Warren Buffett, but if you if you're not familiar with Ray Dalio, check him out. Check out his uh, book Principles. Um, yeah, so my book um, again. If, if you're coming to the show late um, or you didn't catch it the first time, you can get it at our website, nextlevelincome.com. Go into the book link there. Um, but yeah, how to make, keep, and grow your money using the holy grail of real estate. So Ray Dalio calls the Holy Grail, and this relates to the last conversation we were talk, talking about here a few minutes ago. The Holy Grail is being able to get a higher return with less risk. And if you look at real estate, specifically cash flow real estate, income producing real estate, commercial real estate, it gives your portfolio the ability to have a higher return with less risk. Why would you not want that? So when I learned about multifamily, and I looked at the different asset classes, and I wrote I, I wrote the uh, ebook um, about three years ago. Now the, the book was published here in the last year, like literally when COVID started. It was it was great timing because I was at home. I was like, what am I going to do with my time? So I just started uh, getting on podcasts and giving my book away and getting it out there. Um, but I I learned that multifamily was one, if not the most stable asset within commercial and having those that income producing ability with an asset class that always has a demand, people always want a place to live. And then going and saying, even narrowing it down further, what our group focuses on is high quality assets that are already stable and producing income, but have a value add component 
And what this means is these are properties built in the last, say, 20 years, Matt, that need a little bit of love, maybe five to $10,000 per unit. And that allows us to bring the property up to a higher level. And what that means is if you're, if you're living in that property and you're paying $1,000 a month in rent, and we come in and say, hey, Matt, we're going to put in new granite countertops. You know, we're going to have wood floors. Um, maybe we're going to provide high-speed internet. And you know, for all these features, it's going to be another $200 a month. Would you be interested? You say, well, man, I'm, I'm already paying for internet right now. Yeah, that, that sounds good. And yeah, actually that looks really nice. Or, you know, yeah, my girlfriend's moving in with me. I'd, I'd like a, I'd like a nicer newer unit. And she, you know, she really likes the looks of that. Yeah. I'll spring for the 200 bucks more a month that increases the value of the property substantially. And that's what I mean by being able to control the value of an asset. We know if we invest a certain amount with a predicted outcome, from an income perspective that it's gonna increase the value. And that's why this is the holy grail. You can control the appreciation, you can get a higher return in your portfolio and you can decrease the risk. So I've heard you talk about the differences between multifamily and single family too, and the ability to control the appreciation. So most people would say that on a single family unit, you can control the appreciation the same way by sliding in those granite countertops and backsplashes and things like that. Why is it different in multifamily? So there's a lot of differences. And again, I, I go into detail in my book and all these all these different things, but I'll try to be concise here. And you can you can read more about it if you want, but there's a few different things. So first off, how are single family properties valued? They're valued between comparable sales. So if you live in a house and your neighbor's house on one side is valued at $250 a square foot and your neighbor's house on the other side is $350 a square foot, the bank's gonna say, well, yours is worth like $300 a square foot. And that's a big range. It's gonna be, it's gonna be narrower than that. But your house is basically the average of comparable sales around you. And I've heard like horror stories here recently about appraisals just because of the way the market is being crazy. I mean, appraisers are, are just doing, you know, kind of making some crazy assumptions out there. So you don't really ever have full control over that. Whereas in a multifamily property or income producing property, if, if your income is a million dollars and it goes up by $500,000, all things being equal, it's going to be worth 50% more. So there's that income component. The other thing in a single family house, so when the market goes up and down, the single family, the value of that single family house goes up and down. You certainly can buy a fixer upper and, and make those improvements. But if you buy a house and it's a rental and you're getting a thousand bucks a month and you raise the income to $1,500 a month, the bank's not going to say it's worth 50% more. They might say it's worth less if the market around you has gone down. So that's, that's a very uh, different thing. What we have in the, in the commercial space, in the multifamily space, is a thing called cap rate. And cap rates go up and down. And that is a component of the commercial space. But cap rates typically are going to go up and down within a range on the 10-year note or interest rates. And if, if I'm like, if some of this is going over your head, check out Glenn Miller's uh, presentation podcast that we did here at the, uh, at the turn of the year, 2020 to 2021. He's got a great presentation that, that really dives deep if you're a nerd like me into that and he explains it. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the simple takeaway is that a single family house is comped based off of the house next to it or in a similar facility. A multifamily commercial asset is gonna be comped by the P&L. How much profit exactly. can you produce from that? And when I try to explain that to new investors, they think, oh, well then you're just gonna go around jacking up rents on everybody and this is why we have an affordable housing crisis and you capitalist pigs. But they're, they're forgetting there's a different part of that. Yes, absolutely, you mentioned Wi-Fi. I think as we go into this digital world, 
being able to offer uh, supplemental Wi-Fi to your tenants and to your residents is going to be an amenity that people follow. But also it's the expense side, right? If we bring in a better asset manager, if it's because I own 1,500 units, I can get a discount on my property management. If it's because we live in a digital world now and I can show my units digitally as opposed to having to have someone go on site and move back and forth and the gas and the travel costs and the things like that. So there's two different components of multifamily. It's increasing the income or reducing the expenses. Each dollar you put to that bottom line actually helps you increase the value. So it doesn't matter what really is next to it. It's a matter of how much income you can produce or how much profit you can produce. I'll give you a great example, Matt. We bought a property and the water bill um, it, we had, we had a leak, a massive leak. We dropped the water bill $30,000. <laughs> do you know what, I mean, do you know what that does to the value of a property? So, you Shoot know, you do up. the math on, on a five cap, you know, what's, what's 20 times $30,000. That's a $600,000 increase in value. <laughs> what about putting in low flow toilets and have a similar decrease? You know, that's going to have, so when, to your point, you know, people are like, well, I don't want to, a big, a big concern we have from investors is I don't want to kick people out. We don't kick people out. Now, if you're not paying rent or, you know, you try to shoot somebody in front of the, you know, the apartment, then we're probably going to kick you out, right? You know, if, if you're not safe or you're not paying your rent, then that's, that's going to get you um, out, of your, out of your unit most likely. But we don't kick people out. What we do is we go in, we make improvements to the property. We make improvements to the efficiencies. We give residents the option to move into a nicer unit. Um, if for some reason market rates or our rates are way, way lower than market rates, we may gradually increase those rates, but we're not, we're not increasing them 50% and kicking people out. Yeah, you just mentioned something about the low flow toilets and I kind of want to pull on that thread a little bit because um, I, I think that the world is moving to this path where you're going to have to have some kind of ESG requirement in your business. And what that means is some kind of social or environmental or governance rule, meaning that, hey, we're going to install solar panels and give back clean energy, or we're going to do um, so many of these units to low-income folks and, and have some kind of social responsibility there. Fannie and Freddie are going to start inserting those as requirements for the non-recourse agency debt, and I think that's going to be a standard across the board as we move into the new administration and future. How are you seeing that play out in your properties? Are you all doing any of that today? Do you have any kind of ESG statement that helps you qualify for loans? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, typically it's done on a property by property basis. So agency debt, GSE. So you have um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and they will give incentives for, they'll do green lending. So if you meet Mm -hmm. some of these requirements for water savings, for electricity savings, they'll give you a better rate. And I'm a fan of that. I think we should encourage it. You know, we have this public private partnership or even, you know, to have these semi quasi, um, you know, public agencies like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That's that's a really positive thing. I agree. I think it. I think we have to be very careful when it comes to um, some of the affordable affordable housing things. We, there's some unintended consequences there. But yeah, I think we're we're already doing it. I think we're going to see more. And it's what's going to happen if the playing field is level and you have those um, issues that are across every everybody's properties. Then yeah, you're gonna. You're going to be, you're going to have to play in that space. I think one thing you have to be careful of is if you have a 200 unit property and 50 of those are affordable, so they're not market rate, the other 150 are going to go up. Mm-hmm. And I think what you see in these markets where you have, you know, rent caps and, you know, controls on that, 
what happens is the gap gets bigger and bigger and eventually that gap's so big you can't jump across it and that's that's something that you know we have to think about as we make these policies i'm not claiming to be the expert but i'm a huge fan i'm always looking for ways to make housing more affordable and different options i've looked you know it's not i know it's not at the topic of today's show um but we have to be considerate of some of those unintended consequences 100%. And um, I think what you'll see in those rent cap areas is investors kind of be a little tentative about doing a repair. And then all of a sudden, one repair leads to another repair that gets lost. And you've got a Flint, Michigan kind of situation where you haven't updated the water pipes in forever and unintended consequences happen. I guess what I would say to kind of close that conversation is everybody listening has an issue that they care about, whether that's clean energy, affordable housing, making sure we're doing diversity across and inclusion of the rest of society that historically has been left out undeservingly, right? We're moving into this world of your dollars matter. You as a capitalist in America get to vote with your dollars. So what I want people to understand is that when you're making those buying decisions, when you're making those investing decisions, whether you're investing passively or actively, find somebody that aligns with the things that you care about and go invest Absolutely. with them. Because those people like yourself who are raising funds to go do this, they're looking for investors and you might have something you specifically care about. They might have something they specifically care about. Go marriage that together. And that's how we can make differences in society, in my opinion. That's huge, Matt. I'll piggyback on that. And look, I'm an environmentalist, solar panels, drove a Prius for years, you know, rode my bike to school, got my church to start recycling when I was 11. I think we can, we can do both because as the world evolves and we look at some of these technologies, it's a win-win. Like how is it not a win to save, save water and make more money for investors and have a lower water bill? you know, that your residents might have. And, you know, all these things, you know, if we're, if we, if we're thoughtful about them and you're thoughtful as an investor about who you work with, you can have a positive impact and you can make money. hundred percent. And as endurance athletes and as investors, you and I have this graphs of knowledge around small incremental changes lead to big results if they're done consistently. So Absolutely. as you're, if you're a passive investor out there and you're thinking, what does my 50K matter? Or what does my 100K matter in a trillion dollar industry? Probably very little, but if it's done consistently over time yep. with a group of people, we just saw Wall Street bets take on a hedge fund with small investments into a small stock. So it does matter if you're cognitive about that and you align yourself with the right operators. So tangent over, uh, I, I want to switch gears on you real quick onto this concept of an opportunity fund. So you and I've done a little chatting back and forth of, hey, I just exit a deal. I've got money in my bank account that's sitting there. It's getting 0.01% interest and it's being deflated away through inflation. Are there better ways to put it? And you're a very knowledgeable person on this topic. So I kind of want to explore this idea of talk to us about what is an opportunity fund, first and foremost. One of the concepts in my book and really what I what I talk about, you know, the overall next level income strategy is how to make more money, keep more of your money through proper tax strategies and entity structure, and then how to grow your money. And if you look at ultimately how you grow your money, I talk about there's three buckets. So your first bucket should be your your safety bucket, you know, your safety net, your emergency fund that you have like six, six months, even up to 24 months of cash that you have accessible and available. You have your protection bucket, which is things like insurance, right? So you don't want, if you make all this money and you have, you don't have insurance and somebody sues you, you can lose a lot of it, right? So, you know, aside from taxes, you know, your second biggest expense potentially could be something like a lawsuit. And that could even be uh, something like a divorce. 
But ultimately, it's the third bucket that you asked about, which is what I call your opportunity fund. And what that is, that is your fund. And this can be a bank account. This could be an investing account where you put your dollars that flow from the first bucket into the second bucket, ultimately into that third bucket that you then invest in your strategy that grows. My personal preference for an opportunity fund is using high cash value life insurance. Some people call it infinite banking. And what it is, it's, it's very specifically structured whole life insurance. Now, I worked for State Farm 20 years ago. We didn't talk about this. Nobody taught me how to do this. You have to work with an agent that understands it, and you have to work with a company that can do it, and not every company can do it. So what, what you do is you basically maximize the cash value of a whole life insurance policy. You minimize the fees. That's why it's challenging to find an agent that wants to minimize his fees and his commission. But there's a lot out there that will do this. And think about it this way. If you're an investor and you understand real estate, if you rent... That's like buying term insurance. If you buy, that's like buying, if you buy and have a mortgage, that's like whole life. You have a flat premium and you have equity in your house that goes up over time. You have equity in your insurance policy that goes up over time. It's so powerful that Congress actually put laws in place in the 80s because people were using this as a tax shelter. But a lot of the tax advantages still, still remain. So these policies, your money can grow inside of them while it's providing you this tremendous insurance benefit if something happens to you and it can grow at four five six percent you can then use that money in two places at once it can be applying to that insurance that you have and you can go invest it in other things like real estate and you can take that money and that money that's coming out of there you can flow it right back into your insurance policy the other reason i like these types of policies is because it can act as your emergency fund it can act in, as that protect bucket, and it can act as a tool in that grow bucket. So if you're listening and you're thinking, well, I, Chris, you know what? I do term. You know, my advisor told me that I should buy term and invest the difference. Listen, this is how poor people invest, Matt. If you think, oh, I want to be a millionaire, you're going to be poor. I got news for you. You got to think like a $100 million person thinks. $100 million person sent a millionaire. Not a millionaire anymore. That's, that's old advice. The ultra-rich have a lot of cash life insurance. The people in Congress have a lot of high, high value cash life insurance. And what happens is you can pull that money in and out, in and out, in and out. And over time it grows tax-free and you can ultimately take it out tax-free as well. So if you want to learn more about that, we actually have a whole page that we put together, a whole section on our website under banking. And you can get a white paper on there. You can watch a video on there. I touch on a little bit of my book, but it is a very specialized policy. And that's one of the reasons you know, I, had to, I had to kind of learn this over the course of 10 years. But now knowing what I know, I want to share it with as many people because it's just, it's so valuable. And I actually had a friend who did this and, you know, he set it up for the financial reasons. He lost his wife a couple of years later. And, you know, if you're thinking, hey, this isn't a great investment, it's, it's not an investment. It's a tool that can be used for multiple things. So it, it can, it can be very powerful, especially if you have a family. That's right. And I will say it took me about six months to really grasp the concept, right? So yeah. for those listening out there that hear Dave Ramsey kind of go on his tangent saying this isn't a good idea, I'm not here to tell you what's right for you. But I will tell you that I think he makes a, a lot of ill-informed decisions. And I almost guarantee you he has some form of whole life insurance that he is hawking over there because you mentioned four, five, six percent. Is that guaranteed or do those numbers change? How, what delineates the difference there? 
there are guaranteed minimums within the policy and then there's dividends. So it, it, it depends. And really you have to talk to your agent and get an illustration to figure out what that means for you. Those numbers that I threw out there, those are real numbers. Those are numbers that we've, we've seen historically over time. And keep in mind that these insurance companies have been around longer than the IRS has been around. And when the great financial crisis happened, you didn't hear about insurance companies like blowing up. Like these life insurance companies are still there. They are very stable. They're run by super smart mathematicians, you know, actuarial scientists that are that are figuring out the numbers using laws laws of large numbers, um, and it's 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 really amazing if you look at it. It's very simple, but it's very powerful. Yeah, I, I just kind of want to pull that because when you say six percent, but we just said that the average stock market makes eight percent and cash flowing real estate makes eight percent. The key thing there, I think, though, is tax free, right? If you get an eight percent return. Yeah, on a, a stock trade and a 6% return in a cash life insurance policy, ultimately they're about the same when you pay the taxes, right? And the fact yeah. that it's protected from liability, you can loan it and have it going and growing in two different places is key. I'll just give a quick example because again, I, I found out this probably eight months ago and it did take me a while to kind of learn it. But when you start hearing about Disney, the Rockefellers, Sears, people like that using it, you see the power. Here's the power I saw, is people get caught up on this wheel of 6% and I don't break even until seven years in and all this kind of stuff. I found a home in Chattanooga for uh, $60,000 that was a wholesale deal, but I had to make a decision in two days. Well, I didn't have $60,000 in my bank account at the time and I wasn't gonna liquidate the savings that I had and take out some of my stock market to make this move. So what I did was I loaned money from the policy and then used my income from the property and my income from my W-2 to funnel it back and pay myself. It was a quick yeah. transaction that would have not happened if I had to go through the bank for a loan and things like that. And what we saw in 2020 is equity line or credit lines froze up. And this is guaranteed yeah. that you can loan yourself the money. It's written in the contract and uh, no government can come in and, yeah. and delineate the contract language. So yeah. It's a, it's a binding contract, Matt. And it's really, again, don't listen and be like, okay, just go, go educate yourself on these things. If you look at historical rates of return for investors in the stock market, the actual, actual returns for investors, what they actually get through their behavior is typically low single digit. So, you know, if, if, if you're looking for something in your portfolio that's stable and you're an investor, this is a strategy you need to look at. And this is why I actually rewrote my book and put this chapter in chapter three called your opportunity fund. That's awesome. So I want to switch gears into one last little topic here since we've got you is I know you're a big uh, data analytics demographic person. Is there anything you're watching from a demographics trend or trends in real estate or trends in investing that you can kind of give us your uh, your insight to? Yes. So the reason I got into medical device was because of the baby boomers. So I said, hey, the baby boomers, they're getting older, they're active they're going to need you know medical implants new knees new hips you know these things so very stable industry the reason i moved to the carolinas specifically Asheville, north carolina is because i knew people were moving to the southeast so i just wrote a topic on how uh, geographic arbitrage you can go on our website and check that out i kind of i'm not going to go into all the details now so then i said okay chris as we get into 2020 2021 and we're going into this next next decade what are the trends going to show so I think we're going to see a couple things. One, millennials are going to 
form households. So we're going to have to look at kind of what the millennials are doing with the households. And uh, we're also, we're starting to seeing some of those ramifications here in the, in the crazy housing market that we're having. They still have a lot of student debt, which is why I'm still a fan of multifamily real estate. But then we also, you need to look at the demographic trends of baby boomers and their parents as they age. I think the need for medical office space for senior housing is going to continue to increase. And you talk about an affordability issue. There's going to be some serious issues with affordability for caring for these seniors. So I think there's going to be a big opportunity in those spaces going forward. So my, my prediction for this decade is watch senior housing, watch, watch medical office. Love it. Well, I want to switch gears into our last round of the show. And it's five questions we ask everyone. I'll start with what is your favorite book or what is something you're reading right now that's just kind of interest you? Yeah, so I am finishing up called Mind Over Money. And it kind of talks about like I was like we started the show off, you know, how your your relationships with your parents and things that you've gone through in life, they affect your money. So if if you're if you feel like you're not making the best money decisions in your life, Mind Over Money is a great book to kind of explore some of that. My book of the year last year was called Lifespan. So I would say that's my book of the year and is written by a man called David Sinclair. And he talks about how aging is a disease. It's not inevitable. So read Lifespan. It will change your mind. It will change your outlook on life. And if you could live another 20, 50 years, how would that affect your life and what you could achieve in this planet? I love that. You gave me that recommendation a while ago and I read that. And I would definitely say it helps with the mindset shift of like getting clear on what you really care about, knowing that you're going to live uh, to 123, because he says 122, knowing that you're going to live into your 120s, how do you start living differently today? Yeah, um, the it. next one, the one is, I believe that the person you are in 10 years is directly correlated to the things that you do every day. What is something that you do every day? I've, I've been meditating now for four years, over four years. It's in my fifth year now. And I was just listening to, uh, actually, I think it was Mind Over Money that was talking about how meditation can actually retrain and change your brain and wire you for happiness. So I don't know about you, but any, if you're listening and you're like, ah, we're talking a lot about money and finances, chances are you're not, you just don't want money. So you can look at your bank account and say, Hey, I got another zero or another one in there. You want money to do something. And we all want to be happy. We want to be free. We want to be happy. So I think meditation is a very important part of my life and ultimately, you know, the happiness that I strive for. Yeah, I've talked about it a little bit. I got into meditating probably about two months ago um, because I was listening to like Jerry Seinfeld, Ray Dalio and uh, yeah. Russell Brandt and all these different people talk about meditating. And I thought it was really foo-foo. And then I tried it. And uh, Jerry Seinfeld has this analogy that you've got a dead cell phone and meditating is like the power cord that'll plug you up. And it's really hard yeah. to sit there and not really think about anything but it's so mentally refreshing in a world today where we have so many distractions. So there is a Absolutely. constant theme out there that you find successful people meditate. So you maybe should take a listen to it and just try it if you're, if you're uh, on the fence about it. The next one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Ooh, I've gotten a lot of good, I've been fortunate, I've, I've gotten a lot of good advice. But I think, you know, something that comes to mind, I had a manager and I was looking at a leadership role and he said, you're not ready. And, you know, it was hard to hear but it was basically like, you need to learn to work with people that aren't like you. And I'm a very driven individual. I used to teach DISC, uh, you know, DISC personality mm -hmm. profiles with the sales reps. And I'm like a straight D, like 100% D. So I'm, I'm a driver, I'm you know, data oriented, I'm results oriented. 
And sometimes it's challenging for me to relate and, and work with other people. So learning how to communicate better with other people, understand people from their perspective, meet them where they are, um, was, was just, was huge for me. It totally transformed kind of the way I communicated, the way I sold, the way I trained, um, ultimately moving into, into leadership and a management role. Um, and that was about seven years ago. So that was some of the best advice I got, not only for my career, but probably also for my family and friends. I love it. I think 2020 fractured a lot of different parts of societies inside of America, globally, uh, red, blue, all this kind of things. And there's 7 billion people in this world and we are all in it together. That's right. right. That until until Elon yeah. lands on Mars, we are in this thing together. So <laughs> finding a way to connect with people. Yeah. Finding a way to connect with people is huge. And it's a skill set, right? As robots continue to automate things and things like that, yeah. a skill set will be a differentiating skill set will be your ability to connect with people. So what is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Being a father being a father and my, and my boys. So, um, I don't know. We'll, uh, time will tell if, you know, if I continue to be proud, but you know, really I, I want, I write this in my, in my life vision. Um, and the last line is I basically, I want to be the person that my boys are proud of. So I want to be proud of them and I want them to be proud of me. That is really the driving force. And that is the, the prism, the, the lens that I look through everything. You know, I, I, I say, you know what, I want to always be proud to tell my boys why I took a specific action. And if I can't, if I can't look at them and say, Hey, I'm proud of this, then maybe I shouldn't be doing it. I love that. I love that. All right. Our last question is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, who would it be and why? You know, I've, I've read a lot of Tony Robbins stuff. I've taken a lot of his courses. Um, I, I would love to eat a bowl of ice cream with Tony Robbins one because of just the force and energy that that man is. And just some of the stuff he's done the last year is like around money. Um, you know, like, uh, he's, he take he jumps in a cold plunge every morning. So I, I, I've been cold plunging almost every day here for the past few months, but also I don't think he eats a lot of ice cream. So I think that would be pretty cool to be like, not only did I eat something with Tony Robbins, but it was ice cream with Tony yeah. Robbins. Yeah, well, the the size of that man, it must have to be a lot of ice cream. I had no idea he was like six seven. He's huge. There's, there's a great there's a great uh, movie scene um, where he's in the elevator with uh, Jack Black, and he grabs his head and he's like, "Let go of me, banana hands." I mean, that guy. <laughs> yeah, his hands are like a freaking bunch of bananas. Amazing. Yeah, I I uh, I've recently started listening to some of his stuff in the morning, and I mean he's very thoughtful, very energizing, very, uh, very inspiring with a lot of his material. So I love that answer. Yeah. First one to say that answer too. So where can our listeners find out more about you if they wanted to get your book, learn more about you and connect? Yeah. So now again, I appreciate the opportunity, Matt, to share with your audience. And I mentioned a couple of times, nextlevelincome.com. It's nextlevelincome.com. Again, you can check out our podcast or blog. Uh, we talked about the banking and then obviously our book, you can get it for free by clicking on the book link. Awesome. Well, Chris, fantastic conversation. Thank you for sharing your insights and uh, look forward to having you back on the show. Matt, enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.